I don't know if this is a summer episode or not. It feels summery. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by two other hosts, the regular other hosts, the co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And the editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. The other, other host. Other, other host. This week on Unorthodox, we bring you an episode that's been in the works for a long, long time, and that I feel is actually going to really hit the sweet spot for a lot of people at a time when we're all sort of saying, what is our most authentic self? What is our relationship to the universe? Uh, how do we really look inwards for who we want to be and what our deepest values are? And the reality is that for some people, not for all people, but for some people, one avenue to that kind of introspection, to that kind of spiritual engagement is psychedelic drugs. And we've been working for quite some time on a a special look at Jews and psychedelia. So here is where I should say that if you are worried about listening to a podcast that speaks of drugs warmly and positively, or if in your own recovery journey, maybe it would not be healthy for you to listen to such a podcast, you should skip this week's episode. But if you're intrigued to hear our take on how Jewishness might inform psychedelic use or how psychedelic drugs in a Jewish context can help you grapple with spiritual and and moral questions, then I hope you'll stick with us because I think we have a pretty special episode for you. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to get to the news of the Jews first. I'd like to look outside of our basement studios and look at the world and and what's going on with Jews out there in the world. And then once we've covered that territory, I would like to look inwards and begin talking about Jews and psychedelia. Does that that work for you, Stephanie and Liel? So chill. Yes. Once we've done talking about this, we'd like to put on a fish album, stare at the wall, (laughs) and get really groovy, man, like far out. But first, my favorite News of the Jews item this week, and a little bit trippy in its own right, Facebook prank tricks thousands into thinking that Back to the Future actors are an Israeli couple from the 1950s. Now, unsurprisingly to those of you who have listened to me at all, I love the movie Back to the Future. I think it's one of the great works of art ever made. And I was so excited to see this piece from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency last week. Thousands of Jews in Israel and beyond responded to a plea for help in identifying a couple pictured in a yellowing photograph from 1955. A guy named Ariel Plavnik, 43-year-old tourism salesperson from Kfar Saba, wrote in both Hebrew and Spanish in a Facebook post, Hey, everyone, I need help. I found this picture on a Tel Aviv street. I want to return this old, beautiful photograph. If you share it, maybe we can find the owners. And the post got shared all over creation, and it's a, a slightly altered picture of Crispin Glover and Leah Thompson playing George and Lorraine McFly in the flashback sequence, which is most of the movie, Back to the Future. So... This, of course, like some people got it. Some people said, oh, my God, that's the McFlies. Uh, It turns out that Plavnik was just he was just goofing. He didn't think that people would actually think it was a lost Israeli couple. By the way, little known fact, they survived the Holocaust by getting into a DeLorean (laughs) in Krakow. They they went back and they killed Hitler. (laughs) That's right. But it's this baby Hitler. My favorite thing about this story is basically like Jews love genealogy right now so much that people were like, here, I like people thought that they like could identify who had identify who these people were that they were like from this <laughs> Polish town, and it kind of shows how, I guess how how gullible sometimes we are on the internet. They're the McFlysteins from Tenafly, <laughs> you know. Everybody knows that. It's funny because I always thought the Israelis loved Seinfeld more than anything, but I guess they also <laughs> love Back to the Future. 
But it turns out that Crispin Glover and Leah Thompson are not the only 80s actors in the news of the Jews this week. Stephanie or Liel, would one of you like to catch us up on the Winona Ryder, Mel Gibson contretemps? I would be happy to. Um, so basically, Mel Gibson, over the years, we've heard some like pretty horrible things that he said when he got stopped for drunk driving in, I think, 2005. He said, like, the Jews control everything. The Jews make all the wars, which was, like, a very weird thing to suddenly say. He also called the the female arresting officer sugar tits. Yes, so, you, you, will, know, you never fail to remind us um, about <laughs> never, that detail. Never, ever. But basically, Winona Ryder did an interview recently with the Sunday Times, and someone had asked her, you know, did she experience anti-Semitism in Hollywood? And she sort of had a few examples. And one of them was basically, you know, she was at a party with Mel Gibson, and he said something homophobic to a friend of hers who was with her and then he looked at her and she's Jewish and said you're not an oven dodger are you and an (laughs) oven dodger is like a horrible and also like very very almost like retro like an old school anti-semitic insult the idea that you like dodged ovens in the holocaust the great thing about oven dodger is he's not just resorting it's not like you're not one of those sheenies are you you're not a hebe the curatorial aspect of it in what cigar filled back room in his weird you know little sect of trad catholicism were they thinking of new and interesting things to call jews and who was it who after the third brandy said oven dodger That's the thing you come up with at three in the morning after you've been working on it all night. So, okay, you're calling someone an oven dodger. So you acknowledge that there were ovens that people dodge. (laughs) Like you actually, it's, 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 it's a totally messed up thing to say, but it acknowledges the Holocaust and it acknowledges something that actually a lot of Holocaust deniers deny. There's that anti-Semitic mindset that says like, Hitler didn't kill any Jews. But if he did, it's only because all of them deserved it and he was a wise man, right? Like it's, well, which, which is it? And then of course, Gibson denies all of this and says that she's like has a vendetta against him or something like that. Winona Ryder did not make up a lie about Mel Gibson in which he called her an oven dodger. That that came from real life, not from her sick, twisted Jewish mind, right? So guys, would now be a good time for me to uh, mount a defense of Mel Gibson? Oh, God. <laughs> cool. Are we, are we in that stage? There's no yet? better Is time, Leo. Go for it. First of all, look, if we have arrived so deep uh, in the annals of cancel culture in which Everyone is canceled, and then some people really should be canceled, aren't canceled, and everything is just this, like, Jacobin, fiery mess. I'm just going to go with the people I genuinely enjoy and pay no attention to what it is that they actually said or did. And Mel Gibson, I genuinely freaking enjoy Mel Gibson. And here's why I enjoy Mel Gibson. I enjoy Mel Gibson not despite, but because... Of the things that you just said. I like my anti-Semites raw. I don't like them like, well, you know, we don't like your kind in a country club. We're like, you oven dodger, Vatican II was a lie and you killed Christ. That is my variety of anti-Semite. That, my friend, is commitment to the pursuit of the hatred of Jews. And as Jews, we should appreciate that someone took so much time to actually come up with a theology (laughs) of why they hate us. This is not casual. So you're like honored. Like that, that that's oh, yes. how self-hating we all are that we're like they took the time to like to figure out why they hated us. It's not self-hating. If you're going to have a nemesis, have a serious nemesis. Don't have some like, you know, casual, well, you know, according to intersectionality, you guys are like I don't want that. I want like you killed Jesus and the Holocaust never happened. I was like, sir, <laughs> now the game is afoot. I just have to say, like, I find Mel Gibson so creepy and so disgusting. And like, visually, he's just like so leathery at this point that I'm like, you actually like are the lead of a horror movie. 
And what you're going to do is just like haunt my nightmares. I feel like this deserves deeper inspection. And I'd like to go very philosophical and say that in all cancel culture decisions about anti-Semites, you are either a John Cusack or a Mel Gibson. I personally don't enjoy Mel Gibson's movies much at all. I guess the early Lethal Weapon was fine. There was a kind of joy to Braveheart, though I don't really want to watch it again. But John Cusack, of course, you know, I mean, Better Off Dead, Say Anything, Gross Point Blank. I mean, there are a few more important actors in the canon. He's so essential to my life. And he, of course, periodically tweets stuff that does cross the line from, you know, genteel anti-Zionism right over into anti-Semitism. So just a recent example, he retweeted the anti-Semitic meme that shows a hand stamped with the Star of David uh, sort of squashing a bunch of people down. And it has the quote under it, to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. Now, I have no interest in canceling John Cusack. I'll just be perfectly honest. And and by cancel, I, I mean, I want his movies to still be shown on cable networks. I want him uh, to be brought out of formaldehyde periodically for a new movie. I want my daughter to memorize Say Anything. Like, I can't really envision a generative fruitful life going forward without John Cusack's art in it. However, I'd throw Mel Gibson under the bus because I think his movies are not that good and, like, he calls people oven dodgers. But I take it, Liel, that you're not there with me. You would do the, the reverse. You know what we should do, Mark? I think we should do like carbon tax credits. I think we each get like five like anti-Semitic points that we get to spend on actors or entertainers that we really like. <laughs> and then we could just trade. Be like, I'll give you John Cusack. I could do without, you know, say anything. But give me Lethal Weapon because it's a freaking awesome movie. This is very, very confusing. And I will say I, I don't agree with, but I appreciate the Talmudic parsing of celebrity anti-Semitic comments. You know, I'm proud that we're doing that important work here. You know, guys, I will say that I was initially skeptical uh, when the idea of a Jews um, and psychedelics episode was proposed. I sort of was like, I don't know. It feels like we're like glomming onto something, trying to make it like edgy and cool. What what could there really, really be? But I have to say that I was really convinced by what I heard, um, what, what our listeners will hear later on in this episode. And it kind of got me thinking about like, you know, we talk about like, are Jews big drinkers? I mean, obviously, Jews are everyone. So Jews do all sorts of things. Um, so whether or not they like go sailing or play lacrosse, some of them do. But I think if I have to go to pop culture, right, which is where I so often go to like figure out what our cultural standard bearers are. I mean, when I think about like Jews and drugs more broadly, I really think about the like Jewish stoner bro that sort of like come out in the like Judd Apatow movies, like Seth Rogen, Pineapple Express, Jonah Hill, like all these basically like lovable bros who just like love to get stoned. And that's like kind of become a weird movie archetype. And I don't know how much their Jewishness is involved in that. I think that you're onto something very, very profound, Stephanie. Thank you. <laughs> and I think that uh, I did a lot of deep, deep, deep scholarship on this in college, um, published in many peer-reviewed journals, uh, cited in many Supreme Court cases. You know, you have your money Jews, you have your sports Jews, you have your book Jews. Uh, you did have your drug Jews. We called them the crispy Jews. And these were Jews who were, you know, there was something... I'm going to proceed delicately here. Often they had really curly hair. Sometimes they would do it in dreads, which is now a controversial thing to do and seen as a kind of cultural appropriation, but people didn't think about as much in the mid-90s. And in, in a kind of Adam Duritz, lead singer of the Counting Crows sort of way, there was a sense that because of their swarthiness and hirsuteness, that they were kind of tiptoeing toward a Rastafarian vibe. I'm not endorsing any of this or defending any of this. I'm saying I think there was that sense there. So when they rolled up a fatty and put on some reggae 
or some jam band music and kicked back wearing a Baja drug rug and maybe like sort of Jamaican knit cap. There was a sense there that they were doing something exceedingly ethnic with their drug use. And I don't know that they theorized it that way, but it was impossible not to begin thinking in those terms, especially if they were sharing the the fatty with you. There were sort of two roads that diverged in the woods. One was a kind of Rastafarian reggae vibe, and one was a more jam band, Grateful Dead fish vibe. But they they were both very real, and I think Judaism played a big part in both of them. So I basically want to subreddit your observation now, because while you did taxonomies in college, know what I did in college? Drugs. <laughs> I did all the drugs in college. There were literally years in which there would not be drugs in Israel, because I probably did all of them. Uh, there are, I think, if you're into the business of taxonomizing, uh, I would say that there are probably four sub uh, categories, <laughs> subreddits, if you will, of drug users. These are the genus of the species? Yes. Let us observe them and see where our people fit in this conversation. There are the people who are into blow, the blowbacks, we could call them, uh, who enjoy cocaine very much, uh, which is a, you know, there are probably some Jews in that group. Yeah, cocaine is goyish. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a stand. Coke is goyish. Cocaine is for people who want to have fun for very short periods of time and then forget about the consequences. This is not our people, is what I'm saying. No. Then there's heroin, of which, you know, uh, certainly there are people who are addicted to this terrible and, and, and seriously kind of like, you know, life-altering uh, uh, drug. Uh, probably some Jews in there too, but there's nothing inherently Jewish about the desire to basically suppress any and all feeling and suffering and pain, again, historically not us, which leaves you with two choices, with pot and psychedelics. Pot is for the people who basically kind of um, aren't really ready to commit yet. They're sort of in it for the ride. Maybe they like fish. Maybe they like lying on the dorm room floor and looking at that poster of Albert Einstein sticking out his tongue. Psychedelics is for people who enjoy being in their own head for very long periods of time while contemplating every tiny iota of human existence. It's like studying Talmud. It's like going to show the morning of Yom Kippur. It's like engaging in so many other kind of mystical, Hasidic, Kabbalistic experiences that really force you to push against, you know, the the utter outer realms. It's, it's Gershom Sholem's drug. It's Martin Buber's it really drug. Is. You want to see the spherot? You want to see the real kind of outer layers of, of the universe? Yeah, man, me too. For both of you, I, you know, to the extent you're willing to share, did you find yourself drawn at particular times or places to psychedelics? Was Were you a psychedelics guy? One million percent. Pot is really nice, but I find pot, honestly, as, especially as I grow older, to be kind of a waste of time. Like, it just mellows you out a little bit, but like a good rosé will achieve the same thing. Psychedelics is when the journey really becomes super interesting. The only problem, of course, is that the long-term price uh, of admission is extreme. You don't want to do too much of that, or it will do too much of you. Stephanie Butnick? I would say that my interest in psychopharmacology deals more with like the here and now, uh, the day-to-day -day of existence, not the other realms. So if what I'm asking is, am I the only one of the three of us who once flew to Amsterdam specifically to have a drug weekend, did mushrooms, and then went to the Van Gogh Museum and finished it off with the Anne Frank house? That would be only me or that would be every other Jew in existence who ever had $200 and a free weekend. You're smart to start at the Van Gogh uh, <laughs> Museum because I started at the Anne Frank House <laughs> just as the shrooms kicked. And let me tell you, 
it was not an experience that I care to return to in my mind. And it ended with me literally running, screaming out of the Anne Frank house, finding the nearest park and hugging a tree for a while just to soothe myself because it was not a good ride. You know, it's funny, like with that movie, The Fault in Our Stars, everyone was mad that they were making out in the Anne Frank house when they went to visit it. Um, I think you're totally right. Like the Anne Frank house is like on your list of things to do while in Amsterdam. Also on your list of things to do while in Amsterdam, I think for a lot of people are, you know, are sort of like recreational drugs. And so I'm not actually surprised that the idea that like <laughs> young Jews abroad go to the Anne Frank house and are like, right. I'm climbing up the staircase. Oh my, like they have a truly, I don't want to say transcendent. I want to say probably like quite disturbing experience, but um, maybe that heightens it. I don't know. You know, that was really the only time I ever did psychedelics was that weekend long ago in Amsterdam. And I did love them. And I have thought ever since that if God forbid, I'll just be totally real here. If God forbid I ever got diagnosed with a terminal disease or just had some sense that the end was near, I can't see why I wouldn't spend my last six months or two years tripping my ass off. Now, the answer to that I've gotten from some people is no, you'd spend that time trying to be really present because you have a wonderful family and children and God willing, you'll have grandchildren and like you'll want to be there for them. But I like to think I'd find time for both. You know, it's funny. My plan has always been that the moment I hit, say, like 75, I'm basically going to drop acid like three times a week. And I'm, I'm saying this only half in jest. Here's the thing that, that I learned. Psychedelics don't actually make you into someone you aren't. Uh, really, I think very few drugs do. What they do is help you kind of peel off a lot of the layers that by default we're kind of forced to sort of ossify into not to get you know to dorm room friday night 2 a.m conversation here we're way past that right but like there, there are so many occasions in life in which we just harden into certain positions into certain feelings into certain beliefs into certain ways of seeing ourselves right this is this is why Ram Das, uh, who you'll hear about a little bit soon in, in the great Alex Wall piece uh, later in this episode, was such a genius. I mean, here's a man who is a Harvard professor at like 28 or something like that, successful and, and you know, has it all and all the societal respect he could want and all the money he could want, but feels like there's really not much there to be had and needed, uh, you know, started off with psychedelics as, as, as a means to peel off all that dead spiritual skin. To me, that's the part that makes it really, really interesting. It's not the, oh man, I got high and it's really nice. That part is actually really juvenile. And and also, mm. like from that, I discovered later in life, I actually don't do psychedelics anymore because in a weird way, I don't like it when the trip ends. Uh, and I figured out that there are ways to take the same journey without the chemicals once you kind of have seen the the contours of the path i think prayer is that i think you know a lot of other kind of work that you do with other human beings in communal forms and in meditation etc is that that's the part that truly interests me right it's a part of really getting to the point that i'm past myself that i'm past all these weight uh, that was otherwise on my shoulders. Leal, does that mean that you are not, when you reach the age of 75, going to do massive amounts of acid thrice weekly, or you are? No, he's going to put on to fill in and he's going to pray three times a day. Because I'm looking, when I turn 70, in the year 2050, when I turned 76, I'm actually looking for a drug buddy. And if it's not you, it's going to have to be Stephanie. Stephanie, you in? I won't be 75 yet, so I'm going to like be a little <laughs> bit behind you. I'll still be like 63 and like living life. Leal's going to be 
clean and vegan and praying a lot and Stephanie's still going to be in the prime of life yes. uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be out there on the clifftop by myself fans of the J crew you know if you have nothing to do in August of 2050 when I turn 76 join me uh, maybe we'll be in Vermont somewhere uh, we'll put some government mule or fish on the boombox and we'll see where it takes us well government mule getting a shout out two weeks in a row on the show two weeks in a row We're just amateur questers after Jewish psychedelic experience. Our ace contributor, Alex Wall, whom you heard from with the extraordinary piece about V on our conversion episode several weeks ago, is back in a little bit with the story of a rabbi, a venture capitalist who survived the Holocaust, and the question of what it would be like if, at Kiddush, after services, instead of having just a schmear of bagels and cream cheese, we decided to microdose LSD. But first, Liel, tell us about the conversation that you had this week. I think that next to sex and religion, drugs are probably the hardest thing to get right in writing, right? Every time you write about drugs or drug experiences, it sounds like you're like, you're far out, man. I'm trying to be one of the cool kids. But Jesse Jarnow, who's an amazing musician and also an amazing journalist, reporter, and writer, wrote a book called Heads, which is the definitive biography of how psychedelic culture arose in the United States in the last five or six decades that also answers the question of why did so many Jews play such key parts in this movement and in this culture? Have a listen. Our guest today is the great Jesse Jarno, who wrote this book, Heads, which is really sort of an astonishing history of the psychedelic movement in America, the Grateful Dead, Ken Kesey, everything you ever wanted to know. It's an enormously entertaining and informative read. Jesse, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Reading through this book, maybe it's my own biases because, you know, I'm the host of a Jewish podcast. <laughs> maybe it's my own biases because I've, you know, dabbled in psychedelics. But it seemed to me like a lot of these cats who made the psychedelic movement possible in America, a lot of them seem Jewish. A lot of them do seem Jewish. Some of them are actually Jewish. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not a coincidence, I don't think. You know, a lot of the psychedelic movement, in, especially in the United States, really rooted in colleges and universities, um, especially around the Northeast. I don't totally know the exact numbers, but those are, you know, pretty traditionally Jewish strongholds. And there is a very long tradition in Judaism of um, questioning and, and wondering. And I think psychedelics uh, speak to a lot of people who've sort of been brought up in that weird space between Judaism and secular skepticism. Let's begin in the beginning. So it's now the 50s. It's the East Village slash California Tell us a little bit about how this movement takes hold and how it takes flight. Albert Hoffman invented LSD in the 40s and, and, and later called it an antidote to the atom bomb, you know, kind of a, an accidental discovery. And throughout the 40s and the 50s, there was this real emphasis on, on exploration. It's almost like in a way it's kind of the tail end of like almost like the Victorian age of exploration or something like that or 
where you have these stories in like Life Magazine, where there's like you know a cover story in Life Magazine, and I think in 1957 is about you know this journey to Mexico to discover these amazing mushrooms, which turn out to be psilocybin, and that becomes this huge front page story in in, in Life Magazine, and, and kind of puts the idea of psychedelics into circulation, kind of almost you know, maybe more like a meme than an actual thing that was available. Which I was shocked to learn from your book. I mean, at this time, the cover of Life, it's like five and a half million copies. And it wasn't a, oh my God, a new menace rises. It was sort of like, hey, look at this interesting thing. And you cite in your book that people wrote letters to the editor saying, well, I too partook. And <laughs> that's kind of amazing, right? So how does it go from this to, to bad? If you date the mid 50s as kind of the emergence of psychedelics into like mainstream consciousness through articles like this, there's really like a 10-year period where psychedelics are treated in the press basically like they are now as kind of miracle substances. You know, we don't really know everything they can do, but LSD helps cure this or that kind of thing. And there's this wonderful book, <laughs> I'll plug somebody else's book, uh, called Acid Hype, which is like an academic study of the way acid specifically, but psychedelics in general, were treated in, in the press in, in the late 50s and early 60s. And you, you really see this turn start to happen kind of in the early 60s, kind of around the time that Timothy Leary starts popping up in headlines and, and shouting about the radical possibilities of LSD. There's really like a very harsh public turn. And these scare stories start appearing in, in, in the early 60s. And there are all these reasons for that. And it's, you know, there's no one big anti-LSD conspiracy that suddenly turned everything bad. But you see lots of these kind of like little things. Like, And, and Leary is the biggest example of where you look at what the Harvard campus looked like before and after the Harvard Psilocybin Project began. And, you know, you pretty clearly see them sowing the seeds of chaos. <laughs> You know, on the college campus. And you kind of see that that anti-authoritarian reaction to, to psychedelics kind of popping out, you know, wherever psychedelics appear. It almost is a natural reaction to psychedelics. You know, they're very, I feel like there's very few universal reactions to psychedelics, but negative reaction to authority, I think, is one of the big ones. And that that's sort of what becomes clear, I think, in the early 60s that begins to turn the tide. Do you think that's sort of a universal reaction, or do you think that was heightened by the socioeconomic political trends that were already in the air? You know, the thing about psychedelics is you bring your culture with you, whoever you are, whatever your culture is, whatever you've been raised in, that's the starting point. It's not like LSD or any psychedelics make you a blank slate. So, yes, in the, in the late 1950s and 1960s, I, I think that's absolutely correct. That's, that it really does seem like it was a reflection of the, the world that you know, a lot of these people were in. Right, because the thing that sort of kept popping into my mind as I was reading your book, it seemed to me almost like psychedelics traveled a very similar path to bagels. You know, they begin as like some <laughs> esoteric thing that Jews do just for their own illumination. And then all of a sudden the Gentiles <laughs> figure it out. And and then you could get it at the airport in Kentucky and then it's no longer cool, right? Yeah, well, can't, can't quite get those at the airport yet. But, but you know, but, so there's also this whole other parallel thread of LSD being, and psychedelics kind of being part of the power structure and being part, you know, people who were higher up getting into them. You see that in the examples of, of like Claire Luce Booth, who is one of the co-owners of Life Magazine, who's extremely, you know, the definition of conservative and I think I might get this wrong. I think for the first time she tripped, she actually got like a Nixon or Eisenhower. Some some super <laughs> right wing person called her on the phone during her first, you know, that kind of thing. 
So you do see it kind of inserting itself into the halls of power as well. And in those places, there's absolutely not anti-authoritarian things happening. It existed in all these places simultaneously. Right. But one thing that I learned from your book, which I hadn't considered before, which you know makes, of course, perfect sense to me, is the fact that you know this starts... And the first, if I dare use this religious terminology, high priests of this new religion, right, or of this movement, people like Allen Ginsberg, are genuinely interested in it in large part because of what it could do to you spiritually, right? Because it could open all kinds, to use Aldous Huxley's famous metaphor here, it could open all kinds of doors of perception. And they're genuinely, as you said, curious about using this as, as a sort of way to induct the elites into this new movement. And you write in the book how Allen Ginsberg walks around and gives it literally to every musician, painter, poet, you know, he could find sort of knocking about the East Village to get this kind of movement started. And then all of a sudden it becomes mass and, as you said, reflects a whole different slew of sexual psychodynamics that are going around in the culture. So was that a moment of heartbreak, the moment where where these kind of first, and again, largely Jewish founders realized that their quest to create new avenues for spiritual awakenings were now just basically a party drug? I don't find that heartbreaking. I don't. To get back to Ginsburg doing that, I do want to differentiate between the founders of Life magazine and kind of the jazz musicians that, right. that Ginsburg was turning on, which is a, a totally different kind of elite. A few hundred million dollars difference between them. Yes. And, you know, that's, you know, Ginsburg was trying to find kind of an artistic elite. In my mind, you know, he's trying to find the heads, kind of. And I guess that's the reason why I don't find that heartbreaking is because the part that I find heartbreaking is, is the negative reaction to it in terms of making it illegal because suddenly people are having these bad flip-outs. I feel like that could have been dealt with in another way. But to me, the, the reason it's not heartbreaking is access, basically. To me, that's still the main problem of the, the contemporary psychedelic movement or the current medical moment is that it is, you know, it really is about access. And in a way, I really do think that that mid-60s moment where people like Owsley, Stanley were starting to like manufacture black market LSD in massive quantities was about providing access and was about like, you know, making it this thing that it wasn't just, you didn't have to be this very special person plugged into the special social network to get it. You could just get it because humans should have access to it. People like Owsley, Stanley, and Nick Sand and Tim Scully, who were the actual black market acid chemists, that was their motivation was to democratize it. And there were a lot of bad side effects from that. Like, undoubtedly, <laughs> not questioning that. But I think the amount of places that it went after that, I think is that there's, for me, there's far more of a positive. One of my favorite bits in your book is when Stanley has a calculation error and moves the decimal dot like one point over. And as a result, people go on three day long trips. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't say these are always the most responsible people <laughs> to be handling this. But on the other hand, I still, you know, would trust Owsley more than I would trust a pharmaceutical company. Right to be the person to decide these things <laughs> right. about something like LSD, you know. Between AstraZeneca and some dude in the Bay Area, like, the choice is pretty clear. Let me ask you this, speaking of the Bay Area. So your book, it could be read all sorts of ways because I'm sort of a grim and grouchy guy. I kind of read it as a journey from enlightenment to darkness. Okay. It ends with this, you know, Silicon Valley moment when, as you said, access is, uh, is now limited to a very specific cast of people who have sort of medicalized it, speak of microdosing, speak of 
kind of taking it in all kinds of ways that are tied to neuroscience, that are tied to sort of brightly lit labs. And again, seems to me to A, replant it in an elitist, socioeconomic elitist context, but also B, kind of rip it away from its initial mysterious, awesome, I mean that word biblically, side of, hey, this is a, this is a tool for spiritual engagement. Yeah. I mean, so I guess there are a few ways to respond. To that. The first is that when specifically talking about LSD and not mushrooms and other substances, is that LSD, when it was invented, it was intended to be used medically, though not medically in the therapeutic sense. It was intended to be used medically in the kind of in the fill in the blank sense. Right. Like they didn't really know, you know, what LSD was for. Like the, you, you look at the early history of it and it's, you know, Sandoz kind of sending these samples out to doctors saying, hey, we've got this thing that we think is a miracle drug, but you got to kind of find your own miracles for it is sort of the way that they kind of <laughs> put it, calling it like penicillin for the mind, I feel like is, it was a phrase that got thrown out a lot. So even before it became this enlightening anarchistic thing, LSD was, and psychedelics um, were, were, were part of this medical establishment. And so this current moment, yeah, there is, there is definitely this elite aspect to it. But I also think and believe and know for a fact that the psychedelic underground continues unabated and that there's still massive amounts of access to these substances for people who don't, who don't have access to a doctor who's going to treat them with, with psychedelics. And that's, you know, that's good and that's bad. It's, it's great in the sense that my belief is that, that people should have access to this stuff and that there are hundreds, if not thousands of years of lore that go with these substances that if you're sincerely interested in investigating them as a user, there's a lot of literature you can read and participate in these substances completely safely outside of the medical establishment. I guess that's my feeling is that that world, those two worlds now exist in parallel in a way that they didn't really in the 50s and the 60s, whereas in the 50s, you had the medical establishment and in the 60s, you kind of had this anarchistic underground access to it. Those were kind of almost like two distinct periods. And now I, I really feel like both of those things exist simultaneously. But there's a lot of bleed between those two worlds. There's a lot of gray areas. The heart of your book, perhaps, or a heart of your book, is this kind of like great description of the Grateful Dead and the scene around it, the band's archivists and historians and fans and, and the whole culture. As you see psychedelics, I don't want to say begin to rise again, but sort of transform in, into new things, do you foresee a new culture rising with it? Are we going to have a new Grateful Dead type of scene? It's hard for me to say that, to say as a deadhead and somebody who's, you know, somewhat emotionally invested into, into that world is that my hope is that whatever scene emerges comes out of something that doesn't toss out what came before. You know, I, I'm, I'm a real believer in historic lineages and, and not in a power structure way, but just in acknowledging that you have allies in, in the past. You can look in the 50s and the 60s and 70s and you can look before that and find people that you think are sympathetic with your beliefs and your your treatments of these things. And my hope is that that, that continuity is just going to is going to continue. But that said, I hope that someday I, I'm looking at the social media platform of the future after Twitter has been banned or whatever <laughs> and look at it and, and suddenly discover that there's all, you know, people who, you know, I'm how old am I? I'm, I'm 41. I have to, have to count now. I hope that someday I discover that there are people who are like 40 years younger than me or 30 years younger than me who are doing something completely different based around psychedelics. Hallelujah. I want to end with one hard-hitting question okay best dead live recording 
I try not to do best. One that grabs me constantly, no matter when I put it on, and it's a cha- and there's a, a good chunk of a chapter in, a, in the book in Heads about it is the August 27th, 1972 show at the old Renaissance Fairgrounds in, in Veneto, Oregon, which is became the Grateful Dead concert movie Sunshine Daydream. Right. But it's them playing, you know, tripping their faces off for <laughs> the Merry Pranksters in, in this insane summer heat. And there's, you know, one of the most beautiful versions of Dark Star of all time. It's got an incredible plane in the band meltdown. And it's really that period of, of the Grateful Dead, kind of the beginning up until 73, 74, 75, is to me the one that just channels their psychedelic optimism in the best way. So eras, that, that's really great. But there's something about the music of of those years that in addition to the notes and the harmonies and the the jams being good, there's something about the energy of it that sort of crackles through on a lot of those tapes. And that that one especially. Jesse Jono, thank you so much for everything. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Jesse Jarnow's excellent book is Heads, a biography of psychedelic America. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show.
here's a story from reporter Alex Wall about three Jews, a guru, a Holocaust survivor, and a rabbi, and their belief that we should all be following them on the Jewish psychedelic path. Late last year, the world lost one of its greatest rabbis. He didn't have a pulpit, nor was he ordained, and he probably wouldn't even define himself as Jewish. But Ram Dass was everything we think of when we think of a great rabbinic master, a wise seeker, a gifted teacher, a man who inspired so many to look deeper within their hearts and souls. He was born Richard Alpert and became a talented psychologist and one of Harvard's youngest star professors. Then he met Timothy Leary, the father of the psychedelic movement, and started dropping acid. Harvard soon fired him, but he didn't care. The drug showed him the way, but he realized they were only the door, not the destination itself. I don't think there is much doubt about it for you and me, for many of us, that at least psychedelic chemicals, not all drugs, but psychedelic chemicals, have a capacity to cut through places where you are attached and clinging, to set them aside and show you a possibility. They don't allow you to become the possibility, they only show you the possibility. Then after a few hours, you lose the view of the possibility and you have it only as a memory. Alpert traveled to India, meditated, and changed his name to Ram Das. He spent his life learning how to reach these higher spheres of spirituality, and a generation of disciples followed. The signs are everywhere, but especially here in the Bay Area, where Rabbi Zach Kamenetz lives. I was, not, I was not raised religious, and I did not really know much about Jewish spirituality. Zach is an Orthodox rabbi who lives with his wife and daughter in Berkeley. what meditation was. Zach had always been interested in the mystical. When he was 15, he had an experience in Israel that is largely responsible for turning him from the mostly secular kid he was to the Orthodox rabbi he is today. My teacher showed me kind of the layers upon layers of settlement and destruction and settlement and destruction. And there was just some lightning bolt that hit me. And I interpreted this as having a direct revelation from God, God's self. So when he heard that Johns Hopkins and NYU were looking for clergy members to take part in a study with psychedelic drugs, he said, sign me up. After extensive screening, he went to Baltimore. The first time, almost immediately, I started to feel something. I felt sensation in my arms and my legs, and uh, I lay down on the couch, and I was given an eye shade and um, headphones for support. I listened basically to like a six or seven hour playlist. Zach was given psilocybin, the compound found in psychedelic mushrooms. There were two guides by his side the entire time. He told me they were there to mind the shop. If he got anxious, they would tell him to trust the flow. An immediate kaleidoscope of beautiful colors and lines and spirals and felt like I was starting to go on a roller coaster ride. 
I saw like faces and forms moving in and out of each other and kind of starting to feel like there was a message to that, right? I wasn't only witnessing something, but I could see that things are connected and although there might be diversity, it's kind of just phasing from one form to the next. It's just that in my waking mind, it just goes so slowly. But in this place, in my mind's eye and being um, under the effect of this compound, something else was being told to me. But then the trip got much more specific. See, Zach and his wife had experienced infertility earlier in their marriage. For over a year before the study, Zach had been feeling really depressed. His faith had been badly shaken. He found himself questioning all his religious practices. In 2017, they finally had a baby girl. And even though his depression began to lift, he just wasn't feeling it the way he had before. Our daughter was born three months prior to this first experience. And I had overwhelming love and gratitude for my wife and for my daughter. And then just a, a huge sense of gratitude for, for God. Um, whatever the pain had been, whatever the trauma had been. And so maybe I didn't meet God there in that space, but I felt profoundly compelled to just say thank you. I felt gratitude for my, my daughter being born, but never like this. I could even feel like my brain chemical juices squirting out and just flowing through my body and maybe like oxytocin or dopamine, just like feeling very, very good and crying. Um, at one point I felt as though maybe like I was giving birth to my daughter or even like I was giving birth to my wife holding my daughter. Zach came home with so much excitement to see his wife and daughter and more alive than he had felt in a long time. He began looking into mystical experiences in Jewish sources and found quite a bit. In fact, he's become kind of an expert on the topic. What Zach would like to see now is Jews taking psychedelics with Jewish intention, higher purpose, kavanah. Zach envisions a future where this is a regular part of Jewish practice. And he likes to point out that it's in our past. After all, the Baal Shem Tov, founder of Hasidic Judaism in the 18th century, believes he spoke to the Messiah in some expanded state of consciousness, bringing back a piece of wisdom he didn't have before. Could it have been a trip? He didn't take a pill. We don't even know. It says that he did it through a hashba'ah, through an oath. We don't even know what that means. Um, but some sort of magical or mystical or even shamanic process, uh, he was able to enter into something quite simply. Zach believes that psychedelics can blast a spiritual path for any of us who grapple with difficulties, with hurt, with unresolved traumas, which is, to say, pretty much all of us. But for one proponent of this unorthodox approach, it was a way to wrestle with some particularly mighty demons. George Sarlo, 82, is a retired venture capitalist and a Holocaust survivor from Hungary. When I visited George at his San Francisco home, he told me that one guided experience with psychedelics had healed his lifelong depression. He saw his father's disappearance on the eve of World War II as a wound that wouldn't heal. Inside the successful man was an abandoned four-year-old boy. 
my uh, father was uh, called into Munkaszolgálat. That's the Hungarian word for forced labor. Uh, when he received the telegram that he had to go, his uh, face turned ashen. And uh, the next morning he was gone. He didn't say goodbye. I was four years old. And a four-year-old doesn't understand these things, and uh, my mother didn't even try to explain it. But uh, I made up a story. And uh, the story was that my father left without saying goodbye because I was a bad boy. I think that stayed with me for a long, long time. In 2012, he had lunch with his friend Gabor Mate, another Hungarian Jew, who is a Canadian expert on trauma and addiction. George told Gabor about his struggles with depression. Gabor asked George if he had ever heard of the plant medicine, ayahuasca, which, until recent years, was primarily used by indigenous people in Peru. But Gabor wasn't the first to have this idea. From the 1960s to the 1980s, Dutch psychiatrist Jan Bastians treated over 300 Holocaust survivors with psychedelic drugs. And Gabor had already been conducting his own studies with psychedelics and addicts. But it was a giant leap to suggest to someone who had never touched the stuff, especially since it required international travel. So when uh, Gabor suggested that I try it and told me what they were, I was convinced he was out of his mind. You want me to go where? You want me to do what? He must have been really persuasive, because soon George was traveling to a small fishing village in Mexico called Yalapa. It's remote and only accessible by boat. You'd have to wait ashore. His first morning there, the 15 or so participants met each other. George said that he hoped to meet his father and get an explanation for why he disappeared. The ceremony was that night in the jungle. In his hallucination, George saw soldiers in uniform. But while it seemed like the right time and place, there was no sign of his father. Also, he experienced the really unpleasant side effects of ayahuasca. You throw up and you leak from all openings and it goes on for a while. And it's dark and you have visions, and some of those are scary. So that's when I decided, if I can just get out of this once, I'll never touch the stuff. The next day, he told the shaman he was done. But that night was Day of the Dead. The shaman told him that the curtain between the spirit world and our world would be thinner. So chances of meeting his father would be better. So George gave it another go. Soon after the ceremony started, he saw a skeleton in the snow. He knew it was his father. And I asked him, why didn't you not say goodbye when you left? And he said, in perfect English, (laughs) which was surprising to both of us, I think, that um, he left because it was very early, and he thought he was a clever guy and he can get out of it 
and he'll be back the same night, so why wake you up? It, it's a simple explanation, and it fitted. And um, soon after, slowly, my depression lifted and never came back. But there was another confrontation that George needed to have. Like many survivors, George had a lot of unresolved anger toward a God that couldn't or wouldn't prevent the Holocaust. Psychedelics gave him a vehicle to have it out with God. I met with God two or three times. And uh, he said that he was lonely. Surprise. And then he asked, uh, why did you turn away from me? And I gave it to him. <laughs> you are asking me, what about 17 other members of my family? You asking them too? It, it was harsh. And he listened. And then he said, you don't understand. The greatest gift I gave to humanity is free will. So along comes Hitler. What am I supposed to do? Go and drown him? You can't have it both ways. Now that's an explanation I probably heard before, but it didn't register. This time it registered. After practically a lifetime of disconnection from Judaism, George joined a Torah study group, and then, eventually, a synagogue. Because of my experiences, uh, both with Judaism and with psychedelics, I'm a much better father, I'm a much better grandfather, I'm a better friend, and I'm better to myself. It has to be said that this stuff isn't recommended for everyone. Both Zach and George would tell you that if you're thinking of trying it, you should be in good mental health. And doing so with a guide, as they both did, is the best possible way. George has now taken this on as his life's work. He considers it medicine that healed his childhood trauma, and he just wants others to benefit as he did. He is putting most of his fortune into funding research on using psychedelics to treat addicts and trauma survivors. Meanwhile, Zach wants to be the world's first rabbinic psychedelic guide and will be certified next year by the California Institute for Integral Studies, an alternative university in San Francisco. Just one or two of these experiences can deeply affect the user, making her feel much more connected to the divine, Zach believes. He wants to be leading the way and making it a thing. And I don't mean like, you know, you go into a synagogue, you take a kippah and you take a tab of LSD, but actually creating an environment where people can have safe and supported experiences in kind of that clinical model where you've got trained guides, you've had preparation work, you've done a little bit of Jewish learning about these experiences, this mystical type experiences from our tradition. You have 
the moment, the couple hours on the couch, and then you integrate into a community of people who have gone through similar experiences. I think that we have the opportunity to rekindle the mystical core of our tradition. This, after all, was Ram Dass's dream. I suggested that they set up an agency similar to the FAA, the Federal Aviation Agency, and uh, <clears throat> that the Kali Agency, the Internal Flight Agency, or IF Agency, and that the agency licensed people over 16 years of age uh, who could successfully demonstrate that they could indeed take off and land safely. And that in addition, the IF agency would provide uh, ground control centers that you could call into if you needed help, if you got lost in the clouds. And furthermore, it would provide maps and charts for special journeys you might like to take. So will synagogues soon become, among other things, ground control centers for people who want to go on daring spiritual journeys? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But remember, it wasn't so long ago that something as mainstream today as a woman rabbi or Jewish meditation was seen as groundbreaking too. What if George Sarlo and Zach Kamenitz are our new visionaries who rather than being here now are foreseeing our future? That piece was written and produced by Alex Wall and edited by Noah Levinson. For more of Alex's work, go to her website, Alex, that's Alex with an I, A-L-I-X hyphen wall dot com. Uh, mazel tov. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a bittersweet mazel tov to Paul Ruest, who runs Argo Studios, where we recorded our podcast and where basically every radio show you like and every podcast you like has recorded at some point. Because of COVID-19, he's been forced to close Argo Studios permanently. And so we are losing our podcast home, but we are keeping Paul Ruest, who has been helping us with a bunch of projects, and he is available to help you too. You can email him at paul at argostudios.com. That's A-R-G-O-T studios.com. We love you, Paul. Liel, do you have any Mazel Tovs? I have two. I have two exciting birthdays happening one week apart. The first, our great producer, Sarah Fredman Ader. Yay! Happy birthday, Sarah! Sarah Fredman Ader. Sarah Fredman Ader. Sarah Fredman Ader. Even she's dancing. My second Mazel Tov, another great birthday happening on July 4th. America, let this immigrant again tell you that even though you're hurting right now, I believe you will always continue your commitment to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, baby. Love you, and I'm proud of you. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Go read it. Go read it. Are you reading it? Go, go read it. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us and leave us your thoughts, 914-570-4869. Try to keep them under 90 seconds or so. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. 
We may come to you live someday again. Certainly you can advertise with us for all of your promotional unorthodox needs. Email producer Josh Cross. That's Cross with a K. J Cross at tabletmag.com. He produces our show along with Zara Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramucci. Our artwork right now is by Kurt Hoffman while Esther Werdiger is out on leave. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com and our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Greg Wolf of Beit Haverim in Davis, California. And we come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.